0: A time machine out of a DeLorean. This is
2: the stupid cancer show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs>
4: Hey, kids! <laughs>
5: People
0: seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely
2: late.
5: And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. woo
4: not Nothing is anything wrong with us? Oh, yeah.
0: Monday,
6: April 25th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of young adults with cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 15-year young adult survivor of brain cancer.
2: And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for The Stupid Cancer Show. Got cancer? Under 40 sucks, huh?
6: Well, get busy living because The Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world, one chemo infusion at a time.
2: Tonight's show, clinical trial myths. Kicking it off in the spotlight, Meredith Israel, Young Adult Survivor Stage 4 Breast Cancer. And then we have from the National Cancer Institute, Nita Seibel, MD, Senior Investigator, Clinical Investigations Branch at the Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program there. And Steve Friedman, who's Chief of Clinical Trials, Operations, and Informatics Branch, Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program at the Division of Cancer Treatment and Diagnosis, again at the NCI. And from the Texas Life Science Foundation, Deborah Vollmer-Dahlke. She's the director of their clinical trial network. Alrighty, folks, as a
6: reminder, this broadcast is a production of the I Am Too Young for This Cancer Foundation online at stupidcancer.com. We help young adults fight cancer every day and are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs because it's not okay okay. that 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. So hello, friends, and welcome to yet another fun and exciting romp through the hay. Hello, Matthew. Hello on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is no excuse for cure, and survivorship is all that matters.
2: You tell him, Matthew. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Download us for free. Sign up. You don't have to think about it. it comes every week. And if you want to watch us live, go to Ustream we broadcasting live from the Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. You don't even need a brain. You need need, need to be a puddle of... No, I don't need a brain. No, no, you need (laughs) to be a puddle
6: of goo to watch the show and listen to it. The basic elements of protozoic biology. Calling all goo.
2: Yeah. (laughs) The Stupid
0: Cancer...
6: Great, now I'm ruined. The Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat feed during each broadcast, and we invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, uh, ask questions of our guests and just I'm get serious. involved in what we got going on tonight. We have a special, yes. 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 in-studio to guest tonight. Please welcome Kelsey Harrison. Kelsey, welcome to Kelsey. the show. Kelsey,
7: hi, thank you. Don't be
6: embarrassed.
2: Great to be here.
6: Don't be embarrassed. She's blushing. She's very sweet. She's blushing. <laughs> My first
2: time on radio. <laughs> oh really? She's like yeah. so fresh. She's like an ivory girl. Don't She's worry. So blonde, we only have six hundred fifty
6: thousand people listening, so oh, well, no better. pressure, no pressure at all. <laughs>
0: Not all. And online. James
6: Manning, welcome, sir.
0: I'm back. J. Well, how are you? I'm doing well. You are?
6: We have to set the mic up so you can talk into it. Yes. Eat it. Yeah. Keep eat away. the
2: mic. Eat it. Eat it. Al.
6: Hey, Weird Al Yankovic finally yes. got his Lady Gaga approval for his, his uh, Born This Way uh, mock up.
2: Is that right? Yeah. That's exciting. I think,
6: Very, I think so. it was called Porn This Way. <laughs> anyway, she was upset about it. <laughs> An that. idol of yours. Yes, exactly. Weird Al. So, anyway, Kelsey. Hi. (laughs)
3: Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing?
6: What the hell are you doing here? What is wrong with you? (laughs) I've got a lot of wristbands on. What bet did you lose to come here?
3: (laughs) No pressure there. Uh, I'm here with, uh, or for, the Jill's Legacy Group. Uh, We're from Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation. Uh, We were started. Jill Costello was a dear friend of mine. And in 2009, she was diagnosed uh, with stage 4 lung cancer. She's 21 years old, never Mm. smoked a day in her life. Um, I love that you have to quantify that, yeah yeah, That's exactly, the stigma, and that's right? that's that's, yeah. that's the whole point of our organization really is to remove that can, stigma from lung cancer, because she would have been smoking when she was five, by the way, having yeah, gotten exactly. it at twenty one right yeah, um, so we're trying to remove that stigma that lung cancer is only for smokers, you know, if anyone has lung, people they can get lung cancer, yeah, um, and so she was diagnosed in two thousand nine and she spent a year of her life fighting lung cancer and and working with the Bonnie J. Adario Foundation. Um, she passed away in June of last year, and we decided to put together this group of young people to really push um, push advocacy for lung cancer and for young people with cancer, Right. Um, you know, that we should be paid more attention to, and, and we have a voice as well. Well, you came to the right place. You came to the yeah, right place. Really. <laughs> I mean, I find
6: it interesting because, you know, the majority of lung cancers, 98% of them are over the age of 50. Yeah. And and less than 1% are under the age of 30. So you're looking at a very tiny percentage of people that, like Jill, who you're you're advocating on behalf of, what is the message then? Is that people like Jill get cancer, deal with it?
3: No. Uh, the message is anyone can get lung cancer. You know, if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. And the survival rate of lung cancer hasn't exceeded 15.5% in the past 40 years. Um Because there's a stigma attached, it's that people who get lung cancer probably deserve it in some way or another because they smoked, and that's just wrong. It's unfair and it's wrong. Um, No one deserves cancer of any form, and so we're. What about Hitler? (laughs) Okay, Uh, exception. (laughs) So how do you
0: change that image from the Marlboro man getting lung cancer to anybody?
3: Uh, We're working from you know, the bottom up. So we've done. Uh, a lot of walks well, and she, runs. this is we, the bottom of the barrel here. So yeah, you're getting yeah. a started right, right good, now. It's good place to start. Starting yeah. at the bottom. No, we've uh <laughs> we've done a lot. You know, our organization is based in San Francisco. That's where I'm from and where Jill was from. And so we've started there. Um Bonnie J. Dario is, is based there, and so we started with walks and runs. Um and we're just, you know, we're trying to hit college campuses now with this Jill's Legacy Group. So we're trying to really uh mobilize young people and and show them that they have the power to make change. You know, a lot of young people feel like there are these big causes and, and they want to help and they want to do what they can, but we're not really established in the world yet. We don't feel like we always have that power, but the truth of the matter is that we do. You know, we have we have our voices, and, and that will make a big difference, I think. Do you- Any... Oh. Sorry, Matthew. No, I just no. Just wanted to quick Lisa question. Lisa wins. Any, uh, thank you, Matthew. Just
2: <laughs> I would just like to know her family history, cancer, any of any kind. Um,
3: a little bit. Uh, no lung cancer. Right. There was breast cancer. Um, I think her grandparents. I don't remember exactly. Nothing in her immediate family. And no, no lung cancer. Not her immediate yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah.
6: No. Are you familiar with epigenetics, the topic we discuss quite frequently here?
3: It's a big word. She looks scared.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Don't scare
2: her off the first show.
6: Epigenetics and genomics are these new buzzwords in in, uh, cancer research. Uh It is breaking the establishment of thinking about cancer as a body part-specific disease. Okay. And the reasons why Jill got lung cancer are entirely different than the reasons why a 65-year-old, even if they smoked or not, get cancer. And I was just watching this video today about the reason why cancer exists in the first place it's because we are not genetically predisposed to live to over the age of 50. The human being, homo sapien, has been around 35,000 years. Our lifespan is 45 years old, genetically. We've extended that. So as a result of extending that, the consequence is cancer. So you get cancer when you're older because you're old. Your body breaks down. It can't deal with being that old. But when you're 20, you're 21, or James, what, you're 14, James? or Four. 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 Well, there you go. Yeah. The reasons why you get cancer, clearly you didn't do anything wrong at The age of three.
2: <laughs> like, I don't think so. It's debatable. Uh, you know, so sure I, is out on that.
6: so the, yeah. why did someone like Jill get lung cancer at the age of 21? Not, forget about not being a smoker. What did she eat? What did her mother eat? What did she breathe and smell in her carpets? What kind of fabric softener? Did they use or uh Lysol? What are the household contaminants that are causing cancer in young adults in all different body parts? versus the reasons why we kind of know why they get lung cancer or any cancer in older age groups. I think that's a great conversation to have, specifically around the idea that she was 21, and it could have been any cancer, but why did she get this lung cancer in the first place is what I think. It's not about racing for the cure. It's racing for the cause. What caused this cancer? I was born with my tumor. What the hell did I do wrong to get that done? (laughs) So these are the conversations I'm really happy you guys are raising at least you're bringing the survivor stories out there or the case stories out there for these conversations to begin to reach the public consciousness, in a sense.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, it's really important for us to start looking at why people are getting these cancers um, and, and after that, how we can catch them sooner. Because right. catching it as soon as possible is the biggest thing. You well, know, how do you
6: early detect lung cancer?
3: Well, that's what we're hoping to push more research in that area. Um, right. There was a recent uh, study that came out about CT scans and how that could could catch lung cancer sooner. Um, but especially in a 21-year-old. But in a 21-year-old, she sooner. showed no yeah. signs until right. she was already stage 4. Right. You know, she thought she had um, a stomach cramp, basically. and Or just it a cough a lot, a lot of times people have. Yeah. Right. And it was stage 4 lung cancer. So I think it's really important, you know, if we caught this sooner, she might still be here. So it's really important for us to push, push this research and figure out what's causing it in people right. who seem, who seemingly are 100% healthy in every other way. Yep. Yeah. So Matthew, you're passionate tonight, giving lessons on epigenetics. That was
2: no, very I'm, well well put before, though, too. I'm a
6: huge Stand of the Cancer fan. Everyone knows yep. that. I can't say, speak enough of their philosophy yep. on desegregating the body parts and looking more at the molecular level of why things happen versus let's just triaging the shit that's already been happening.
0: Right. So anyway.
2: What triggers it in our body if we're predisposed, if we all have these things that are kind of roaming around within us? Yeah,
6: like blue Gatorade. Mm.
2: (laughs) Hmm. It goes
6: in blue. Blue. It doesn't come out blue.
2: (laughs) Blue dye number 12? Yes,
6: exactly, exactly. Anyway, um, I want to just quickly uh, go over these discussion points before we bring up Meredith uh, onto the show for the Spotlight. But um, tonight's show was cool because we made the National Cancer Institute news e-bulletin.
2: Give ourselves Woo-hoo. a cheer! That
6: that gets one of these. That gets a super pat <laughs> on the back to us. And we like to
2: do that for ourselves. No, that's awesome. It we is made, awesome. We made the act,
6: and we made their Twitter feed a couple of times. We made their newsletter. They must think we're important. They must. They. Mu- <laughs> we must be doing something right. The illusion is working. <laughs> That the government now believes we're credible,
2: or maybe they think we're hip like John Lapook did. Yes,
6: yeah. The, the illusion is working. Let's keep the curtain <laughs> closed. Right. And just shut up in the background. Yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> no, it, we're very we're very flattered right. and honored and all of that.
6: And the other big news of the week is, if you didn't see this already, all over the internet, um, the internet, as yep. our former president would have said, I would uh, like to make you all aware that my article calling the moral imperative um, for pediatric cancer has been picked up by the Huffington Post, and is now reaching... Again, it.
2: I'll just give that my own clap. You know what? I'm going to give me this. Just because I can.
6: I am back on the Stadium Huffington Post. Stadium filled with Stadium, people. Stadiums, stadiums of people, yes. Yeah, so Matthew, Matthew. You can Matt, go to uh, the Facebook.com slash Stupid or my Facebook page, or just go to the Huffington Post. It's on today's homepage. As HuffPo. One at HuffPo.org or .com or whatever they are. HuffingtonPost.com. Arianna Huffington is (laughs) (laughs) rich.com. The article basically talks about how we've made so much progress in pediatrics that these kids are aging out into young adulthood faced with an onslaught of unmet needs and that they're funneling millions of dollars into pediatric cancer research and patient services and financial assistance and age-appropriate care, but none of that money helps them once they become 18. And wouldn't it be nice if we got the pediatric cancer world, the mom and pop family foundations, not the hospitals—they're one thing—but we get the corporations that sponsor pediatric cancer foundations and the, the the mom and pop groups that raise these millions. These guys that can write a check by reaching out to ten people to raise twenty million dollars, those kids are going to live, odds are, and they're going to grow up to be me and James and 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 Jill, you know, at least while she was around, and other people who just. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. You live as long as you're cured for or as you're treated for, but you are entitled to be treated age appropriately and with meaning and dignity every step of that process. So wouldn't it be nice if pediatric cancer, threw even a tiny percentage of its money, towards survivorship programs in young adults? Because the young adult world picks up all these Gerber graduates that have issues. I'm one of them.
2: You are? Yes. The stroke? The now hiccups that you have that have come from the stroke.
6: Well, I mean, the stroke is like the icing. We we can dig yeah. down the iceberg.
2: That's right. Well, I've just,
6: just, I'm have just i just talking recent weeks. Like the Titanic <laughs> just hit my face. The rest of the way underneath.
2: Yeah.
6: yeah, the stroke, yeah. right, exactly.
2: Well. No, but like
6: social reintegration, peer support, yeah. college scholarships, you know, getting into school, knowing how to build a resume, dating, yeah. fertility. All the things all the, we like you, to talk about. All the things that, that suck when you don't have cancer.
4: Yeah. <laughs> that you
6: have to deal with just by being 20 and having not died at 6, you know. So, anyway, that's my article. Check it out on the Huffington Post. And uh, you want to so,
2: mention? NC, the, well, I was going to say, so that's now Huffington Post and the NCI Bulletin. Come on. Doing well. Yes. We're getting, you know. we. I mean, we've already had Washington Post and yes. Wall Street Journal. and. Yes. Well, we're really patting ourselves on the I want to go on the view. Tonight.
6: I need my whoopee. Sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm shot. <laughs> Exactly. So we want well, we have a first guest we want to get to but quickly we what else? We want to, we want to talk about Well, I want to talk about Greta Weitz. Yeah, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Dying sir. because she was such a New York city for anybody who spent a nanosecond living in New York City over the past 20 years or so, uh she was like a New York institution. Came from Norway. She won 9 New York City marathons, broke three world records. And when she got cancer, Matthew, did you know she would not disclose what type of cancer she had? She was a very she was happy to be very much in the public eye as an advocate for her sport, as a right. marathon runner. Yeah. But she didn't want to say she wanted to deal with the with the cancer in privacy, which of course she's
0: allowed to do. To, right?
2: Yes. And uh, but when Fred Lebeau, who was the founder of the New York City Marathon, when he had brain cancer, right. When he was in remission and he wanted to run the marathon, she ran with him, side by side with him, and it took them. Over, I mean, normally she ran the marathon in two hours and change. Right. It took them five hours and change, but she wouldn't leave his side the entire time.
6: They, they still would have beat me, though. <laughs> That's
2: true. <laughs> That's true. Um, anyway, but she was, you know, sort of a very dignified sportswoman, and uh, that was sad, 57, that she succumbed to her character. Rest cancer. in peace. Absolutely.
6: All right, let's get to Meredith here.
0: And what time
2: is it? It is now time for our Survivor Spotlight. Meredith Israel. She's 37 years old, diagnosed with stage 4 on metastatic brain cancer in June of 2009. She's in the fight of her life and determined to kick its ass for her 3-year-old daughter Naomi, husband Gary, and family. Meredith found her breast cancer through a self-exam and a mammogram. Since being diagnosed, she's raised over $100,000 for breast cancer research and has been a public voice regarding self-exam and pushing for early detection. Amen, message to that. Please welcome Meredith Israel.
6: Hello, Meredith.
0: Hi, Meredith.
6: Um, Hi. Must, I must take a moment to personally apologize to you. Uh-oh. What? Because I had a fucking stroke, and you couldn't I... be on the show back in February.
7: <laughs> do you want to know who told me, though? Who? Ethan Zahn. He did? Oh. He's a very good friend of mine. I said, oh, I was supposed to do the show, and he's like, he had a stroke. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like,
2: Thank
7: he you, said Ethan. he had an emergency. He didn't say it was a stroke.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I'm glad I, and, you're doing better. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing as as better much more possibly as, 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 as can as more, I be. As more
2: as more better. <laughs> I'm more better. I am more better.
6: Yes, exactly. He, he just has the hiccups. Yeah. He just
2: has the hiccups from his stroke.
6: No, it's crazy.
2: They yeah. just come really? on
6: like yeah, they just all of a sudden I'll like lurch out into like these They're not even hiccups. They're like like erps
7: <laughs> You're going to be like that girl on the today show that had the hiccups. I know, I yeah. know, I know.
2: Meredith, <laughs> if you're lucky, he'll do it during your interview.
7: Yeah. Oh, great. Just pray. (laughs) Let's
2: pray to Jesus for
7: (laughs) Easter
6: from the Jews. uh, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, So, Meredith. I'm excited to have you on the show.
7: Thank you. I'm honored. Well, I'm excited, too. Thank you. No, I'm excited more. (laughs) (laughs) We're never going to let
2: her talk. No. No one's as excited as I am. Okay. Excellent. All right, so tell us. So, uh, 37, you're 37 now. Yes. Stage four diagnosed in June 09. So walk us through your, your your story here and how you you found it found it yourself.
7: Um, yeah, when I was 25, I found my first lump, and I went I was living in New York City, so I went to the doctors and they found an, another lump. The first one was a twisted milk duct, but it turns out they found another one, so it continued continued to grow. So they biopsied it and it was benign but they eventually said, let's get it out. So I had a benign lumpectomy. And their last words to me were, we'll see you when you're 40. And I was like, right. okay. Little odd considering breast cancer and ovarian runs in my family. And uh, in December of '08, I believe it was, I was watching Christina Applegate on Oprah. And I went to my gynecologist and said, you know what, schedule me a mammo. And they agreed and they found two spots that day and they said to me, oh, it's nothing to worry about. Come back in six months. But a month Famous later, last words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a month later, I went back again and said, hey, I found a lump. And they said, oh, that's the lump we had already seen. Don't worry about it.
2: This so, is one month later? Yeah. After the mammogram?
7: Yes, where I could not feel the other two. Suddenly I could feel it. Okay. So then at the end of it's actually the first week of June oh nine, um, I woke up with this pain in my entire right breast, across my shoulder, through my armpit was just inflamed. I was in agony. So I got to the doctor on the Tuesday, they immediately called over to the breast center and um they said, uh, go home, you have an infection and they put me on antibiotics in not kidding, I celebrated that night. I was just like, oh, my wow. God, it's infection. That's great news. And randomly the next day was my follow-up mammo, and they just, I kept watching women come in and out, and they kept calling me back in, and you couldn't miss the math on the mammogram. I mean, I saw it, and they did ultrasounds, and then they came in and said, um, it looks suspicious, which those are the big cancer words, the word suspicious. Right. And, uh I insisted on getting the biopsies that week and they initially were doing 20 biopsies and I made them do the initial one that I had found and they said no and I said no I want you to do it because I want to know who missed it and I said and how does it go from two lumps to God knows how many and so they then that week diagnosed me stage two and they told me to go have the BRCA gene test and a PET scan and a breast MRI. My breast MRI turned out clean. And then the day after my birthday, where I turned—that's um, when I turned 35 uh, or 36. I'm sorry. I was home alone with my daughter, and <laughs> the hospital had the nerve to fax me the results. Oh. So well, I got. Let me,
6: fax. Meredith. Let me ask you a question. How many hours did it take you to glue the spikes onto the bat that you took to the <laughs> hospital the next day to beat the doctors senseless for misdiagnosing you?
7: It was... It, it, I sort of was letting my mother handle that. Okay. <laughs> because mom can wield a
2: like it, that, too. Uh, yeah, yeah Mom was on the phone <laughs> yelling
7: right. at them. You know, I have to say, Mom was yelling at them when the word suspicious came up. She yelled at the radiologist, and he got extremely defensive, but my mom kept saying, well, who missed it? You know, you found it six months ago. Why didn't you biopsy it then knowing our family history? And then when we, um, when I received the facts, I'm not an idiot. So I read the facts, and all I saw was liver, hips, ribs, and I scanned it into two radiologists I know. And I said, is this what I think it says? And... I called up my friend, and he read it and said, we already knew you were in a fight. You're in a way harder fight now. And I so still you didn't. Had, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't accept. I didn't know that men's stage four yet. Yeah. I I just saw that it had spread a lot. And so the they doctors had already scanned apologized. you
2: in those. They had already scanned When you said you had 20 biopsies, explain that. And they had already scanned you in these other, in these they other organs? They hadn't scanned me
7: yet. They scanned me afterwards. So that's the That's what I call the game of breast cancer is they tell you you're stage two. Well, they shouldn't tell you you're anything until all the scans are done because my whole thing was, okay, if I'm stage two, they already told me I do chemotherapy and mastectomy and radiation and then I'll be good to go. But who knew this bomb was going to be dropped on me with the PET scan, which was that it had spread to major organs and that. I was stage four and given less than a year to live. So
2: where? Wow. So where are you now with um, with all of your treatment?
7: Um, I'm being treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering, who I love. I am obviously left the doctors I was with down in Florida. Um, Did they leave
6: yes, with the bruises deep?
7: <laughs> I tried a lawsuit, and you know the reason I can't win is because of the scans. They would win in court because they would say, well, the cancer could have already been there and we didn't, you know, she didn't have herself scanned, so there's no way for me to do with We love
6: loopholes. Loopholes make the, loophole. the world go round, yes.
7: It's a good loophole. Um, but no, I'm at Sloan and I've been on nine treatments in my 18 months and currently, it's funny, you're on the topic tonight, I am on a trial at at the University of Pennsylvania and I just crossed the six-month mark and um, knock on wood, it's doing great it's still in my major organs but it's stable and as long as you're stable with cancer then you can live your life
2: right 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 exactly so what is it so what does that entail you go down to university of pennsylvania what's what kind of clinical trial is it
7: it's called the parp inhibitors p-a-r-p and Mm -hmm. this one is specifically for um BRCA2 or 1 patients which is the BRCA gene. Right. And there are only 305 of us as of this week in the entire world on the trial. Wow, um, we're not all left on it and You guys uh, need your
6: own reality show. Let's call Bravo.
7: <laughs> exactly. And they um and it, uh, once again they are not going to go to phase 3 for the trial even though it's it's not it has not cured anyone but it's it's much less toxic treatments than chemotherapy, so I can live my life. Besides being tired, it's the first time in the 18 months I feel back to myself. I, my hair is growing back. I have tons of energy. I mean, one of the patients said to the doctors, did you give us sugar pills because it's very hard from going to being so sick on chemos to all of a sudden you're on this treatment that is working. But because of insurance and money, they are not going to phase three of the trial. Wow.
2: But so are you are- – Uh, Are you are you you have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation?
7: Yes, I'm BRCA2.
2: BRCA2. And who else in your family has breast cancer?
7: Um, My grandmother passed the ovarian and breast on my maternal side. My mother was my mom and one of her sisters are got tested. They are BRCA2. Her other sister and brother are not. um, And my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer last July. Last July she was. Yes, and my mom was every six months, so getting checkups. Wow. And she forced the biopsy because they found a spot and said, we think it's nothing, and because of me, she forced it, and once again, it was um, cancer. Wow. Yes. So Amazing. Uh, so you yeah, guys are
2: going through it together in the thick of it.
7: We are, and
4: yeah.
7: no pun intended, It sucks, and yeah. it, it sucks, and I have a... Three-year-old daughter, and um, you know, my best friend got diagnosed a month after me, stage four, and that's why I'm speaking out because I just find it so odd that all these young women have it, and that you know, they're t- last year how they said don't do self-exams and don't and mammos right, until you Right. That was. I mean, what is that? So where did you Where did you grow up, Meredith? In Bridgewater, New Jersey. Okay. Nice mall. Isn't it?
6: <laughs> that was the first like, mega mall I ever went to. Is that Oh, is no that you way. went to. No way. Yeah. yeah.
7: Is so much better than that one. <laughs>
6: you no, <know>, the Bridgewater. <laughs> no, I grew, up, I, Meredith, I grew up on Staten Island. We had the Staten oh. Island Mall. So you can so, see where he's coming from. So like, Woodbridge <laughs> well, was like, eh. Menlo Park wasn't built yet. No. But Bridgewater Commons was like the mega mall we had to go oh,
7: there. Oh, yeah. I the lived, first good dive outlet i I was what, a mile from the food? it. I like
2: Meredith. She's like Short Hills is so much better. Yeah,
7: I know. <laughs> Short
2: Hills is foo
7: foo. I like. I, I
6: feel like a person at at the Bridgewater though. So
7: I lived one mile from it, so I was there every day. There
6: you go. There you go.
7: All right, so let's get back. So your clinical trial,
2: then you said so you've done you've done two phases of it. And it's not going into phase three. Is is that right?
7: I guess I entered at the phase two stage of it. My um. The chemo, Taxol and Abraxane, all of that had stopped working on me. And my father had kept researching. I won't go on the Internet because I know what the statistics are, so I let everyone else do the research for me. And my dad, since we started at Sloan, has been like, the PARP, what's the PARP, what's going on with the PARP? But it's so specific for either her two patients with breast cancer or the BRCA, and thankfully my doctor works alongside the doctor at UPenn, and the day I got on, they had just been given 10 more spots. They're not opening it up to anybody else, and it's pathetic because um, one woman crossed the 11-month mark and was doing amazing and opted to come off of it because the tumor markers were getting so high and she wanted to go back on the chemo while she was strong enough, which the hard... Part for me on this is because I feel so good but I also know how it feels to be so sick is I never thought I'd feel this good again so the thought of being sick again is um it makes it harder yeah but on the other hand I'm so appreciative that I get some time back
2: right so right now you're 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 basically in a sort of maintenance like you know that it's still there in your organs but it's not it's sort of stabilized it sounds like so you can live your life
7: Yeah, I mean, I take. I wake up at 4 a.m. and take nine pills, and then at 4 p.m. I take nine more, and I'm on a very structured. That's almost almost
2: as many as Matthew takes in a day.
7: (laughs) Isn't it crazy? That doesn't include my other ones, by the way. That's That's just his.
2: That's just his Xanax, by the
7: way. (laughs) I said those are just in my brain because of
2: the other ones. Yeah,
6: Yeah. exactly.
7: But it's um. No, the game is to keep the to get rid of it. A lot of them have shrunk, thankfully. Um, The biggest thing is my liver has been extremely stubborn with the, you know, and my bones are a very big problem. I have a lot of metastases in my bones.
4: So I'm very
7: careful with what I do physically. Right.
6: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I really am glad that we actually got to get you on the show finally, and David Pluckton says hello. I'm glad he introduced us.
7: I'm so glad you guys met, and especially because of your article with the pediatric cancer.
6: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what his take on this is. I don't think I sent it to him yet. But... I
7: just sent it to him.
6: Okay. Let's... I haven't I'm read it I'm he will beat me up because of it. But in any case, I'm really excited to uh, have you on your show. I look forward to meeting you one day in person, and um, I wish you good luck with everything. Take care of that three-year-old. I've got Thanks. two one-year-olds creeping up on you, so uh, I feel the pain. I know you love
7: putting up pictures on Facebook. It's yes. hilarious. Oh, really? <laughs> well, one would never Are know what sure. yeah.
6: Yes, yeah. exactly.
7: Well, thank right. you guys so much. I'm honored okay. that Meredith, I on the show. Meredith, great having you on the show.
6: Meredith Israel, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, let's get to the news. She's something fierce. fierce. And she is something fierce. I am cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. She's great. I won't miss the cue at this time, I promise. Okay. Yeah. All right, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. And they're all free, and they're all just for young adults with cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking and mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to broadcast during this part of the show, please shoot us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com
2: alrighty head on over to events.stupidcancer.com your one stop shop calendar for all of our stupid cancer events nationwide and in Canada stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods and we certainly don't want you missing out Matthew, do we have stupid cancer events coming up? Uh, We
6: do. um, uh, I don't know where they are, but just go to the calendar. (laughs) I I will admit to being unprepared tonight. Anyway, the the, uh, 2011 OMG Cancer Summit may have come and gone, but believe it or not, we are already gearing up for OMG 2012 in Vegas, baby. But this time we cannot do it alone. Starting in May, we are launching a feasibility survey because we need your help to plan, organize, fundraise, and promote don't miss out on being a part of history. Visit
2: omg2012.org. Got to go to Vegas. That's going to be great. The Stupid Cancer Forum just passed 500 members and are slowly becoming the online community to join if you're a young adult affected by cancer in any way. Got a parent who's sick? There's a discussion group for that. Got a pediatric child who's sick? There's a discussion group for that. Is your spouse, partner, sibling, or best friend sick? You guessed it. We have a discussion group for that. Head on over to stupidcancerforums.com. Sign up with one click through Facebook. It's that easy.
6: All right, folks, don't forget about the Stupid Cancer Street team. Over 200 people have signed up to join right now. Brought to you by the Stupid Cancer Army and our friends at Fancor. This is truly social networking with a purpose. It's free, it's easy. Win great prizes, build our grassroots efforts and meet thousands of authentic fans from around the globe. Sign up today at StupidCancerArmy.com.
2: And every Tuesday, our partners at the fabulous Leukemia and Lymphoma Society present YA Connect, a free interactive webcast supporting young adults affected by all cancers. That's all cancers. So check it out at LLS.org backslash
6: and finally, always remember to register yourselves with Immerman Angels, our partner in one to one peer matching at ImmermanAngels.org. And check out the calendar for First Descent, the premier outdoor adventure organization for young adults with cancer, online at FirstDescent.org. They host dozens of retreats and excursions each year. And that is your stupid, stupid cancer news. All right. This is our groove music. His. It Nita, Debra, and Stevie, Groove Music. Oh, yeah. All right, we're going to be announcing these guys in threes. Dr. Nita Sabal is the pediatric oncologist who is a senior investigator in the clinical investigations branch of the National Cancer Institute. One of her areas of focus is adolescent and young adult oncology at the NCI. She also continues to take care of pediatric and AYA patients on a limited basis at Children's National Medical Center. My old friend Steve Friedman is a 15-year survivor of testicular cancer. He's half nuts. Was one of 26 cyclists to bicycle across country in the Tour of Hope, and is a past president of the board of directors for the Almond Cancer Fund. Our friends down in Baltimore, Steve is the recipient of an NIH Director's Award and several NIH
2: Merit Awards. Deborah Vollmer Dahlke is a social entrepreneur passionate about increasing access to clinical trials. She is the inventor of Navi4Health, Navi4Health, I should say, a multilingual cloud based clinical trial navigation solution and is in the process of building mobile apps for clinical trials and cancer survivors. In her spare time, she's a Ph.D. student, silversmith, and avid motorcyclist. We like these
6: people. Well, we sure do. Nita Sabel, Steve Friedman, Deborah vollmer Folks, welcome
2: to the Stupid Cancer Show. Welcome, welcome.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
2: you all here? Alrighty. There they are.
0: So, We're here. Yes. They're triumvirate.
2: I'm,
6: again, I apologize for having a stroke and having to postpone <laughs> the show for four months, but I'm glad we got you back on. Glad now to we, be
2: here. Now he only has the hiccups, as I like just to say.
6: Just the hiccups. Yep. Nothing else is wrong with me. Not
0: a thing. Nothing nope. else.
6: Nothing, nothing else. at
4: all. <laughs> nothing
6: else. Nothing else.
4: Nothing <laughs> <laughs> else. <laughs> uh, Steve,
6: I have to start with you only because I've known you the longest, and you've seen like, the young adult movement sort of spawn from nothing, having been involved with our friends at the Allman Cancer Fund. Can you just start with your story as a as, as a testicular survivor and getting involved with this stuff?
1: Sure. In uh, 1995, I was I found a lump on a testicle and uh, went to my uh, family doctor, took one look at me and said, we're going to refer you out to a urologist. Took one look at me and said, we need to schedule for surgery. So I was pretty fortunate in the fact that um, it was a quick diagnosis. The doctors were quick to refer me to the right folks. We got the right treatment and uh, fortunately it was an early stage diagnosis so the Uh, Cisplatin-based treatment was very effective for me and uh, not good. I've I've, uh, been a long-term survivor at this point, diagnosed as a young adult. And so when I initially was diagnosed, I went to try to find some resources. The Internet was in its infant stages then and wasn't much out there. It was a a couple of AOL chat rooms. I I think that was about it. Uh, The NCI had its uh, resources that were available, but they were not AYA-specific. And so it was a very uncertain time for me in terms of what kind of information could I find that would be most appropriate for me. Uh, so fortunately, I was able to go through my diagnosis, go through my treatment uh, through the help of some friends and family that were familiar with this, came out on the other side of it, and then found out about some of the resources that were underway, one of them being the Alman Cancer Fund, uh, very passionate group founded by Doug Ullman, three-time survivor. Brock Yetzo is the executive director affected by cancer as well. put a lot of energy into that organization, and they have some great programs and great things that they're doing, patient navigation programs and things like that. And I, I really wanted to give back to the community. I thought this was one way that I could do that. And uh, been able to uh, spend some time with them and, and be a part of the board of directors and really a great group, great activities, great programs. And um, happy to have been a part of that.
6: And Steve's one of the few people in this world that's met my dad.
2: Uh oh.
6: Well, multiple you know, times.
1: <laughs> speaking of the Staten Island Mall.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the first time I met Matthew, he and his dad pulled up in a Corvette, and I thought the revolution will not be televised; it will be driving at 150 miles an hour on the <laughs> Staten Island <laughs> <That's> Expressway. <true.
0: laughs> that is and,
6: correct. Well, all right. Well, let's get to. Um, I mean. I'm gonna go in order of people that I've known. <laughs> so I've known Deborah second. Uh, and I'm getting to
2: know them all now, yes. so I'm gonna let you, and then I'm gonna jump in. Go so ahead, Deborah, me.
6: please remind me how I met you, because I know I've known you just about as long as Steve.
4: Matthew, we met because I approached you when I was working at Emerging Med to try and That's get right. a clinical trials matching system. On, I'm, I'm too, that I'm too young for this, and you did it, and it worked, and then you introduced me to people like Linny. And other folks, and I did um, all those things happened. Yeah, I actually met you in person at an ASCO meeting once. When
2: well, you, you When
4: you actually said the words, um, you did it, and it worked.
2: You should have seen <laughs> <And> how Matthew's <laughs> eyes lit up. He couldn't believe it. Wait, no, I did it, and it
4: worked. It's like that line from <laughs> yes, *The did and where it Doc
6: Brown sees the card, and is like, "I finally invented <laughs>
2: something that it works."
6: Yeah.
4: And I just and I checked on it, and I found out now you link to Lance Armstrong Foundation, which is great because they've got. In addition, I mean I think it's even better now because then you, you know, have allow people to access even more navigation and more services. So that's super. And now we've got some apps for it too.
6: I know, that's fantastic. So let's turn it over to the chairman of the board here, Doctor Subel. Um, I'm thrilled to have you on the show and I'm thrilled that you are such an avid you know, proponent of all the stuff we're talking about tonight. Uh, how did you specifically get involved um, in this stuff? Do we, are you, were you an AYA oncologist to start?
5: No, actually, I was a pedi- I am a pediatric oncologist, but I have always taken care of patients with uh, bone tumors. And as you probably know, they tend to occur in adolescents and young adults. And you can't help but really, uh, you know, see how these patients deal with their cancer diagnosis, which is different from younger patients. And then, unfortunately, I've been in situations where, um, unlike what happened to Steve, where he got to medical attention very quickly, that often isn't the case because of, you know, because of the age and the sort of the thought that, you know, teenagers and young adults are, they don't get sick and they don't get cancer. And so, unfortunately... You no know, i've been involved in situations where patients could have been cured if they had been had they had come to medical attention early but instead by the time they showed up at the hospital or in our office it was um pretty widespread and so the treatment didn't work as well so you know particularly when it's something preventable that's what you know we really need to get the word out there and so that's what we're working on at the National Cancer Institute and with others um, who you've had on the show before, and um, such as the Lance Armstrong Foundation and the uh, Live Strong, and the Young Adult Alliance, and then the Children's Oncology Group right. Advisory Committee. We're all trying to work on ways to really get the information out there. And as again, as Steve said, you know, when he Googled it or went to the internet, there wasn't much out there. We really hope that has changed a lot, and we want it to change even more.
2: So, Dr. Seibel, tell everybody out there listening, as the chairman of the board is Matthew, Matthew you um, no, no.
5: what
2: What do you do exactly as, As we're you know, we've presented your title here, Senior Investigator, Clinical Investigation, but Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program at the NCI. What is your job specifically?
5: Well, among... Uh, There are a variety of things that I do, but particularly uh, working at the National Cancer Institute with uh, one of my colleagues, we were trying to develop trials for pediatric and adolescents with malignancies, and these trials are done through the Children's Oncology Group, but we're very excited because we are now working with some of the medical oncology cooperative groups so we can even have a wider... So AYA patients can have wider access to the trials that are available. And we've sort of passed the landmark because with one of the trials with Ewing's sarcoma that's sponsored by the Children's Oncology Group, one of the other groups, the Radiation uh, uh, Therapy Oncology Group, or RTOG, has uh, collaborated on this trial, and now we have it on the Cancer Trial Support Unit. So that means that this trial will not only be available to physicians or pediatric oncologists at children's hospitals, but it is available throughout the country or throughout North America to investigators who are part of the other cooperative groups. And so if they have a patient with Ewing sarcoma, which occurs the most common time is in the second and third decade of life, they can put this patient on the trial if they know about it, and if the patient asks their doctor about it. Right. That's, so, um, and then, as I mentioned before, we're working at the NCI. There's a group of a variety of different individuals from all aspects of um, of communications, of IT, like Steve. Um, uh, um, from the research side of things, we meet once a month the we to pool all of our resources to see what other things can we do at the nCI to help a y a patients, and so really increasing the visibility and working through the cooperative groups and medical oncologists and the community oncologists to really educate them and let them know about the clinical trials and making sure that we have clinical trials available for a y a patients that's one of my primary goals or primary. Well,
6: let me hop in here with a question for the for the three of you. I guess we'll start with Deborah then. I think the key words I like to hear are like adoption, compliance, and retention. What are the barriers to it? we've been discussing this for years, like obviously, COG has gotten you know clinical trial adoption in their standards of care for the last twenty years, and it's like in the ninety percent, and even adults are what like six to seven, but young adults are like three. I mean, is there a push? or is there a push and if so what kind of push is being made on is it an educational level, is it an outreach level, is it a public awareness level to increase sort of the the um the resource literacy if you would of who these doctors are that should be aware of trials or is it the patient's responsibility for trials? Let's start with Deborah.
4: I think it's all of the above. So I don't think it's like, you know, in terms of of, of um practitioners, oncologists, a lot of community oncologists, yeah, they're oncologists, but they may not know much about trials. And kind of of to Dr. Siebel's point, you know, they may not know that some pediatric trials will accept patients up to 30 or 25 or 21. And so there's this kind of vast level, vast sea of ignorance, really, when it comes to, you know, AYA trials and AYA access to trials. So one is we've got to educate the docs. But two, you know, it's it, we have to educate the patients and their families and their friends and their neighbors and say, hey, listen, there is a reason we need more AYAs in trials. We absolutely have to have more in them for generalizing results. We need more tissue, we need more we need all of those things. So you can't say, well, we've just got to educate the docs or we've just got to educate the AYAs. It's a broad scale need for education and communication and then there's the whole thing about action. And actually, I wanted to ask Nita, uh, Dr. Siebel, about, you know, I just pulled up, you know, 15 trials on clinicaltrials.gov, and they were all PD trials. And some of them went to 21, some of them went to 18, some of them went to, to 25. Is the NCI doing something about making it, you know, more understandable for for people looking at trials, who's eligible at what age for which trials?
5: Yes, and that's an excellent point. Many of the children's oncology group trials now go, their new AML study goes up to age 30. The Ewing sarcoma and the osteosarcoma studies go up to age 40. And then, actually, there is acute lymphoblastic leukemia trial that goes from age 16 or 15 on up to 39 to specifically get the AYA population. And, you know, Really need to work on this more, and we're trying to work, particularly in some of the rare tumors like some of the hepatocellular carcinoma, and that you know they that are mainly adult trials. Can they extend them down to get into the 16, 15, 14 year olds? So it's a joint effort, but it is improving. The number of trials that overlap into the young adult age range uh, is increasing.
6: Now, we're ignoring Steve, and it's the last day of Passover, so I think we owe him uh, some some uh, some time in the spotlight. What do you got, Steve? A happy Easter to you as well. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, really, my role in this whole thing is is to support the doctors, the researchers, the scientists, to, to be able to enable them to do more of their work. What we're trying to do is, as was already articulated here, We want to make it known that clinical trials are a very viable option. You already put the statistics out there. It's really uh, underappreciated by the young adult community that clinical trials can be an appropriate way to go. But that has to be communication that's fostered between the physicians and the patients and the patients, caregivers, and families and all that. And there are resources out there, clinical trials being one. I think I heard Emerging Med as another one. The, the Internet is full of information. Of course, the challenge always is making sure you can filter out the good information from the bad information. Um, there are peer organizations, and that's a lot of what the young adult community really relies upon, is peer-to-peer interaction, the social networking. And so when you look at things like the ACOR listservs that are out there, that's where a tremendous amount of information is shared. And as long as you're able to interact with somebody that's knowledgeable about it, you can start to find your way through it. There's a lot of clinical trials that are going on right now, not that many as as Nita has pointed out, there are some that are focusing on the young adult community, young adult population. You'd need to help emphasize the opportunity to join those trials when appropriate
4: yeah i think I think you said this is Deborah. I think one of the things is there are a lot of sites i mean there is emerging med there's live strong offers you know you can go through live strong to get to emerging med there's breast cancer trials dot org which is a very very highly um specific trial matching system but, um and and as i mentioned there's the clinical trials app that's available um, you know for your iphone and ipad but one of the most important things is is finding someone to navigate you so sometimes there's a navigator at the clinic sometimes you can you know your your doc will be your your oncologist will be your will or, or part of the office will be the navigator but there really is I believe a real need for almost anyone that's looking for a trial, um, or looking for a trial for for a family member or, or a loved one, is to have a navigator, somebody who understands how to, how the system works. We have a, a question, I think, from our is it from our chat room here, James? This is one again? Of,
0: just a question myself. Okay. At the national level, does a community advisory board exist where people that are either survivors, cancer patient. Or people that are going through clinical trials can advocate for the needs of the community. Does that exist either at the national or site level?
5: Yes. Yes. Um, there are advocates and representatives from both pediatrics and AYA on steering committees that are at the National Cancer Institute that are um, review trials that are in when they are first proposed. Part of the Children's Oncology Group also has advocates for a part of that. So there's definitely ways to funnel in information. But certainly, um, you know, they're not perfect and we're not getting, you know, we welcome getting feedback and more information. One of the things that Steve sort of alluded to is that lately at the National Cancer Institute, we've been trying to figure out how can we help patients or get the information to them as soon as they're diagnosed. About asking about a second opinion. About asking about clinical trials. So we, you know, we're sort of hungry to get information from advocates out there and patients about ways that we can help you.
4: And there's there's also advocacy training. There's a group called Research Advocacy um, Network. I think ran. That um, I'll, I'll get, a, get the information to, to Matt. That you can be trained to become a research advocate. So you know we need more people, more AYAs in those groups who are who are trained to be research advocates that can provide that patient and and that point of view, especially for for AYAs because it's not there right now. I mean, I serve as a research advocate on a couple of organizations with Komen and with the American um, with the Surgical Oncology Group. But we need more AYA advocates, and well, we need them to be trained and, and to, to be a voice. The reason I ask is for about 10
0: years I served on a community advisory board at Vanderbilt, and it was for HIV vaccine trials. And the NIH mandates that every single site has a community advisory board, so if there's enrollment problems, if patients are not being informed, these are the people that can step in and speak with nurse recruiters or PIs and say maybe this is where we're having some problems here's our expertise, here's our experience. Let us help you try to recruit more people. So that's, I guess, where I'm coming from with that.
6: Well, let me chime in here with a question for you guys on the panel here. Um, If you're not very familiar, there's a new uh, professional society called the National Coalition of Oncology Nurse Navigators. Uh, We're working very closely with them because they are largely uh, derivative of the young adult movement. They're mostly like 30-something nurses who are building this sort of standard subspecialty in navigation, and they're trying to differentiate themselves from regular patient navigators, from, you know, RNs who are navigators. Uh, Are you familiar with this, and do you think that there's a viability for that new practice to impact compliance and and awareness?
4: Um, Yeah, I'm familiar with them, and yes, but not only nurse navigators and oncology nurse navigators, we think there need to be clinical trial nurse navigators to oh, wow. specifically look at because it's 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 a field too, so I think there's need for deeper specialization. And now I'll shut up. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well there's definitely a need for this and particularly since the cancer centers um recently over the Probably the past two years, there's been a real effort to have more organization and uh, AYA specialists at the uh, NCI Cancer Centers, And so this will go hand-in-hand in in that in developing these programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: I agree with my colleagues. I think that there's a great opportunity here for them to make further inroads. But I think the underlying message here that we want to get out to everybody is that we're trying to remove the, the negative stigma that's associated with clinical trials. Being on a clinical trial doesn't mean that um, you're in a, in a worse position than if you were going through standard treatment. Clinical trials are an attempt to answer some very important questions, and the more people that we can get enrolled in clinical trials, the faster we can get those answers. And so having additional groups organized, knowledgeable, and doing this outreach is a tremendous asset to the entire community.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely
6: i was I was going to ask do you do you um feel i mean HIPAA notwithstanding and best practices and conflict of interest notwithstanding do you feel that there's a role for social media in clinical trials like could you imagine a Facebook for clinical trials high concept
2: well, they've got an app that we're talking about
7: i mean what? actually
4: it's that's, yeah. its it's interesting that you said that because what's one of the things yes there is an app. Called clinical cancer clinical trials, and it's just it's to help you find them. So, but we also think that there's there's like when we and I when we developed Navi for Health, which is is really a a, a navigator tool. But we wanted to build into it like secure social networking, so you could be HIPAA compliant. Right. You know, there are rules about trials, so you you know you got to be careful about you know people. If it's randomized trials, you you know there's certain things you got to control there because it's research. But we think there's a huge role for social media, especially in recruiting. I mean, if as many people tweeted about a new trial as tweeted about your program this evening, Matt, that would be pretty cool, huh? Yeah.
6: I think you're giving us way too much credit. Why not?
4: (laughs) Uh, No, actually, I mean, hey, here in Texas, you know, we had emails and tweets flying madly. But in addition to social media – (laughs) <laughs> huh? Okay. Oh, yes, please come soon. We love it here. <laughs> but in addition to social media, one of the things I want to that I think is so important. It's something we're trying to do here in Texas. Is we need to educate the primary care doctors. We've got we've got we've got more and more survivors, and some of those survivors have late effects of cancer, and there aren't a lot of trials for that right now, by the way. But we need to have the primary care physicians educated to take better care of our survivors. Yeah, and I, really I, said, I, I can't, it's kind of on the I, I, subject of, of clinical trials, but it's just such a huge need.
2: I'd like to talk, to, too, about, uh, let's talk a little bit about insurance and how much of that insurance is a barrier to clinical trials. And also, you know, for folks who are just cost in general and beyond that, if you're somebody who lives, you know, out in the sticks, let's say, for, for lack of a better term. Like um, you. and you? you know, <laughs> like, like me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you... Uh, you know, when you're not exactly, you don't have uh, close access to to a to a trial.
5: So, of so well, ways, uh, first talk about the access, and that it may demand to go to a larger center to be enrolled in the trial, but that doesn't mean that you have to have all your treatment there. Oftentimes, the principal investigator, or the treating physician, will work out something with your local physician. So you can share in your care. So it still, you still can participate in the trial without making all the trips. Now, so your local
2: physician, with, your local physician can communicate with that doctor who's involved in the trial, and you can essentially get that clinical trial through your local physician. Is that what you're saying?
5: Well, that they can share in the care. So you would have to go to the center to be enrolled on the trial, sign the consent. You wouldn't necessarily need to go to the center to get all your therapy. So you may have to go once a month, every three months, and then get some of your therapy by your local physician. So there are ways that you can work out things. So the distance doesn't have to be a barrier to being a part of that study. Right. And then regarding the insurance, actually things have improved as, you know, over the past, Few decades, it used to be where insurance would oftentimes not cover NCI uh, designated trials. That has changed so much in that uh, many insurance companies will only cover it if you are on a trial. Now, granted, it's not 100% of the time, so that's not optimal yet, but it's much better than it used to be. And then, depending on the type of trial, that may be the only way that you have access to new medication, such as the PARP inhibitor, but you can't get it any other way. And when it's provided through the trial, you don't even pay for the, the new medication because it's part of the trial. So there are some <laughs> benefits that, um, that insurance, uh, I mean, part of a trial is really um, be a very positive aspect from the insurance standpoint, because I've been in a situation where I've been discussing therapy with an the insurance company, and, and if the patient isn't going to be treated on a trial, sometimes they will deny coverage.
4: But there's no longer
5: to do that. I mean, that's one of, that's one of the elements of the... Oh. Right, that's changing. Yeah.
4: Okay. That's one of the elements of the Federal Health Care Act, is, is, is insurance companies can no longer deny deny um, providing insurance and and standard of care uh, to people going on to clinical trials, I mean we, we in Texas we passed that legislation about two years ago before the federal government did, and at that time, it was a huge fight because people who were wanting to go on to clinical trials were told by their insurance companies if you will go on the trial, you will lose your insurance that can 't happen anymore and it 's one of those you know when you when you talk about the myths of clinical trials well that 's a big myth. And a lot of people, I think, are still afraid that that's the case, that if they try to go on a trial, they'll lose their insurance. It won't happen anymore.
6: So let me ask the question then. Um, do you have data on the trends? Has there actually been any meaningful improvement in trial adoption, awareness, and compliance in the last decade? And it... Is there a legislative part to this, too? Is there a new way to add sort of some, some sort of standard of care or curriculum as these doctors are in school as residents, interns, and fellows to go out there? Like, where Where is the lowest hanging fruit to improve sort of the gaps in this process? Let's start with Steve. I think you're actually
1: starting with the wrong person on this question. All right, Steve, uh, I mean, go away. This is, this is exactly where <laughs> Deborah and Anita spend their time and energy in trying to formulate these strategies. So I, I'd like to actually turn it over to them for that
6: answer first. All right, Deborah.
4: Okay, so, you know, in terms of the numbers, so, you know, we, the, the, we really don't have a good idea. We talk about, you know, clinical trial participation overall being, you know, five to seven percent, but that data is a little bit questionable since it only considered NCI-funded trials, and something like 60 percent of the trials are pharma trials. So nationally, we don't have very good numbers. But in terms of AYAs, you know, PDs have great, you know, like 90 percent of pediatrics go on trial, which is wonderful. But when you look at AYAs, like 16 to 20 years of age, and that's the younger group, you know, they have maybe... um, uh, actually, it's 15, 20, 21% of 15 to 19-year-olds participate, but the estimates for 20 to 29-year-olds drop like a rock. I mean, it's, it's it's very very low. So the numbers are there, and the numbers suck basically <laughs> in terms of of where's the low hanging fruit. That's really what we're trying to do here in in Texas. We actually got a grant from our Cancer Prevention and Research Institute. Um, to, they gave us $600,000, which we thought was just incredible, um, to be able to educate, first of all, providers, nurses, doctors, you know, the, the, In Texas, we have a lot of rural providers to educate them about AYAs and survivorship and then to be able to reach out to the AYAs themselves. But we want to be able to, you know, make sure that that the AYAs have survivorship plans, that they know that they can, you know, be screened, that they can consider clinical trials. So is the, where's the low-hanging fruit? I'm going to have to say that the first level is, is educating, you know, more oncologists and more doctors and more nurses and more, you know, advanced practice nurses about the accessibility and the need for AYAs to participate in trials.
6: Uh, will you guys be at ASCO? Is this like a topic at ASCO that you try to drive home every year?
5: Oh, yes. I mean, last year there was an educational program on it, and we had proposed another education program with the Young Adult Alliance and COG this year, and they were worried that it was positive. But every opportunity that's possible, we try to incorporate it in because that's a great audience there because you have so many community oncologists who wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. Now, recently, ASCO also introduced a module called Focus Under 40, which mm-hmm. um geared towards community oncologists and even uh, family practitioners to educate them about if they have a patient who they think perhaps could have cancer, a young adult, what do you need to do, and who do you refer to in the steps. And so that just has been released. And it's been done in steps and it covers not only sort of general sort of diagnosis but also into survivorship issues with this group of patients. And that started in November and then next week another part is being uh released as well. So hopefully uh, that's another way to educate or reach these. But I wanted to also mention that the Young Adult Alliance just came out with some guidelines for as sort of standard of care for AYA patients that were published, I think, about two months ago. And so now they're in the process of trying to implement some of these guidelines. And the other thing I've noticed, it looks like with some of the survival outcomes for AYA patients that we're starting to see maybe some hints that the education that has occurred over maybe the past 10 years is starting to have an impact. It's still pretty early.
6: That there may be some improvement. What was she so, losing her bitch. I think we lost Doctor C Bell. Steve, uh Deborah, you were still with us? I'm here. I'm
4: still we're here.
6: I think we I think we lost her. Um
4: Oh, uh, yeah, she was getting fuzzy there too. She a little fuzzy. Yeah,
6: she was Maybe she'll call back in. Um hang on, let's try this again. Doctor Sibel? Yes. I think we're we're losing your connection. If you want to call back in, we can try. Uh, okay. It's getting try, a little fuzzy. I'll,
5: okay. I'll we're not, not going anywhere. <laughs> All
6: right, That's we're not fair. going anywhere. We'll be right here.
5: Okay, I'll try.
6: Okay. All right, so, Steve, every time I ask you a question, you're deferring. So why don't you tell me a question I can ask you that you actually want to answer.
1: Well, actually, I only deferred one question okay. uh, because I think that the work that Deborah and Nita are doing are, are much closer to, to the patients in that regard. My, my role really is to help, again, it's, it's operational, and it's from an information technology standpoint uh, with my work at the NCI. So part of the outcomes that we're trying to uh, really capture here is that we need to be able to do that analysis piece on the other end of the trial. It's, it's great to get people in a trial, but then you need to be able to synthesize that information and figure out how to continue down that, that spectrum so that you can get more trials open, get more support for the trials. And, and so that's really what we do. We have these large-scale databases, and so really what I do is the boring stuff. Deborah and Anita are doing the exciting stuff by actually interacting with patients, organizing the trials, the education piece. I'm, all, I'm in the back with a bunch of computers, and we're just trying to analyze data at that point. So what does the word "improvement" so mean? We need that data. <laughs> mean? You need the yeah. data, absolutely. We want to. Ju- we're sort of trying to justify our own existence in that regard, right? We want to get the data to show that progress is being made and the need for more progress, and um, get the support and, and the funding that we need for more trials. And so that's really, I think, a, a, you know, a, sort of a hot topic. But the funding issue um, is a bit of a barrier that we have to try to overcome.
2: The, what's the best data you can give us, Steve, in support of all that?
1: Well, I look at it from the opportunity that we're trying to create, and I think that we've already talked about some of that data. It's the fact that we've only got a very small percentage of young adults on trials, a right. uh, small percentage of adults on trials. The pediatric population, you know, we talked about, what, 70 to 90% of those patients are being referred to getting on trials. In my, in my situation, my personal situation, my doctor referred me out to the right medical specialist. And I think it was because he was scared of having to deal with my situation. And I think that's what some of these some docs do. Some docs don't want to relinquish control of their patient, and they may not refer them out, or they just may not know. And so I think going back to the social me- social media part is that we have an opportunity here to use this uh, new type of town crier to get that information out to the masses. And, and that's a lot of the work that you're doing here. But we like to see things such as we, we what we want to do what the work that I 'm trying to do at the NCI is to help speed up the protocol development process It's taking way too long from an idea coming to us to actually getting patients enrolled. We need to tighten that down It's taking about two plus years on average to get a trial activated from the time that the, the idea comes to us, and so the pressure's on us now to improve that process and speed up that process because in two and a half years or so, that idea becomes stagnant. New science is, is quickly being developed. We've got to keep pace with that. And so by speeding up that process, getting patients on trial sooner, we can answer those questions, those critical questions that we need to
6: get to. And uh Doctor Sabel, you're back, right?
5: Yes, I'm here. Can you hear okay. me better now?
6: Oh yes, you can we can. Uh we were joking Great. that you were using a um a rotary phone. So uh um... I know I
5: know, I know.
6: Anyway, we were we were just letting Steve finally speak. Um, oh, good. Throw the I dog told a bone. before we got on the air that she was going to be the rock star here, and I was trying to, try to be a lame attempt at comic relief, and I'm
5: failing at that as well.
6: <laughs> well, I mean, Steve is just so
5: humble.
6: I mean, we have like five or six more minutes. I really I want to cover just a couple more things because obviously, we we didn't talk about stigma, and I think that's a big topic when you're dealing with the younger people who are generally more skeptical and we are generally more cynical and captious, do you come across this a lot more with the younger groups or or with younger doctors that, you know, the the idea of, like, we're guinea pigs, even though we're not, and I don't want to be on a placebo, or no one's really on a placebo, can you talk us through, you know, how you manage that, or is there a communication strategy around that to defray it or defer it? Let's start with uh, Deborah.
4: Oh, you would start with me. I was hoping you'd start with Nita. (laughs) So. I guess one thing is that there's a lot of fear about trials because it's unknown and so it's it it is largely it, again it's the two-way communication it is the responsibility of the patient to ask questions and to be curious and I think you know AYAs are real curious and I find them cynical but I find them wisely cynical um, and that's good because they need to be that way um, in terms of of those, you know, being a guinea pig, um, it's a research trial. There are there are there are rules to the trial, and those are important to understand. But there's been so much bad stuff in, you know, on on popular media, like you know, House Show and things like that, where they where they make trials into something scary and strange. And so we need to change that. We need to ch- we need to reframe. We need to reframe what trials are, so that it's easier for. AYAs and their families and their friends and their peers to talk about trials as something and, and to talk about research. And Now, Anita, would you please talk?
5: <laughs> oh, sure. So, but that was a good answer, Deborah. I, uh, part of it, when you think of clinical trials, the whole idea of placebo or sugar pill, you know, that that really doesn't come into play very much anymore because usually you're comparing two types of treatment, and one arm is usually the standard treatment and then the other arm may be the standard plus this new medication. So at best, you're getting the standard treatment. So um, for patients to understand that, it's, it's important that you have these frank discussions and that you build up trust with your patient. I think that's one of the most important things. And that's where the AYA patient, it really makes a difference, because they can see through if they don't feel you're being totally honest with them, that you have to be, you have to develop this trust that's between the patient and the physician so they feel very comfortable that all the questions have been answered, they've been reassured that what they are doing is safe, and to also understand that they can come off the clinical trial at any point. If you as the physician feel that the clinical trial, if they're having too much toxicity from it, then you would immediately take them off the trial. If the patient, for some reason, feels that the trial is just not working out as they expected, that they're having too many side effects, that's just something they would talk to their doctor about, but they always have the right to come off the clinical trial. So there are some things that are not always clear to the patient that can have a huge impact on their decision-making process on whether they'll participate in the trial or not.
0: Are the majority of the clinical trials double-blinded?
5: No. No. Okay, it all depends um and um you know that's the perfect world where you have a double blinded clinical trial, but particularly in this age group, and depending on the number of patients that are going to be a part of that trial, oftentimes they're not blinded you know but but you
4: said something that's really important nita is is the ability i think that there's a need for um it's what's called as health literacy and decision making. AYAs are, you know, especially the younger ones are at a funny age because, you know, either they've kind of aged out of being in their parents' house and they're on their own, but making those decisions is not easy. And and I think that there is a I think that one of that's one of the areas of biggest need and demand is how do we equip Aya's. How do we equip young adults and even, you know, almost any adult with the the thought processes and the tools to make the tough decision? Because sometimes it's hard. It's hard enough when you're dealing with cancer. It's it's even harder when you've got to make these decisions by yourself, or you know, somebody's expecting you to decide what to do. Because it's just tough. So I think there's this need for the trust is important. But also there's a need to help people, you know, learn how to ask questions and and know that they that they deserve and demand the answers.
1: And I, I would echo that and I would also add on, as Nita said, that patients need to understand that they still have a very large element of control even when they're on a trial. They don't relinquish that control. They, they're a partner in, in, in the care they receive even when they're on a trial. So if something's not going well, if something's not right, they should be able to speak up, they should be able to to interact directly with their doctors and their nurses and, and exercise some control over what's taking place in that trial. Now, obviously, as we've all pointed out, there are a lot of rules around how trials are conducted and we don't want to invalidate those rules or violate those rules, but patients have a right to exercise control about the kind of care they receive and how they receive that care. And I think that as more patients, especially the young adults, feel empowered around that They'll be more willing to look at trials as a viable option.
6: Well, we we actually reached our. Um, we have to we have to stop now because we ran over. But we, are, we we ran over for a really good reason. Um, in conclusion, I want to be able to get something from you guys that we can specifically direct our listeners to. Obviously, we've been talking about the Livestrong clinical trials page. There's clinicaltrials.gov. There's Emerging Med. Are those really the top three, or is there one specifically, not to play favorites, that you guys would recommend that if we have questions or people can go, they can get answers really quickly?
4: You know, I think all three of Actually, what I'll say is if you've got breast cancer, you may want to go to breastcancertrials.org, you know, because they – Match so narrowly, and they're starting to they're looking to do to start doing navigation. I think that that Livestrong, which uses emerging med, has great navigators. I know they are and they're my friends, and I love them, and they're wonderful navigators, and they care um, a c s American Cancer Society also has navigators, and they can help people find um you know other supportive care in their communities and they and they have a trial matching system as well and so uh, you know, I, I think that there's—it's—it's it's interesting. It, it, just do something. You know, go to one of those. They're all—all all three of them are great. All four of them are great. But take the step. You know, look for a trial. Ask your doctor about it. Ask your nurse about it. Ask someone because it's an option that you want to explore.
1: And I would add in that um, cancer.gov is another place that they can go. The Cancer Information Service. That—that mm-hmm. that information on how to access. The CIS is on the cancer.gov site, uh, very well developed site. So it's, you know, I think I look at these as all complementary services and yep. sites that people can go to find out a wealth of information.
4: You can, Great. I mean, there's so much on, on on cancer.gov. You can read, and there's there's a whole section just on clinical trials.
6: Someone's phone uh, is and ringing. With that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with Brother that, you've got to run. we're we'll yeah. posting
2: all of these in our chat room, so hopefully. Uh, folks yeah. if they want to check them yeah, out.
6: Yeah, again, once again, I'm sorry I had a stroke, but I'm really glad that we were able to get you guys back on the show, and this has been really meaningful, and and like I said, this this show will live on in perpetuity. I will send you the link to the MP3 if you want to use it again, but thank you so much for making the time. It's always good to have the government on our side.
4: <laughs> we're glad you're <laughs> thank feeling you. better.
6: <laughs> yeah. Thanks all three of you. All right, guys, take thank care.
4: Thank you for having us on. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Dr. Nita Bye.
6: Tabelle, Bye-bye. Steve Friedman, and Deborah Valmadaki.
2: Well, we ran late, Matthew. Nine twenty.
6: No, we're doing good, though. We're doing good. Oh no,
2: it's great, great information. Yeah. All well, right, so I'm satisfied with tonight's show. You didn't hiccup once through the entire show. I think. It, well, it's clearly psychological.
6: Right. But it's clearly neurological. Right. Which means it's <laughs> semi-conscious. Right. Amen.
4: Good night, everybody. Yes, all right, all right,
6: and, all right. That's it. We're, I gotta go home. It's time for our closing sequence. Prepare
4: to activate. Uh, I
6: hear
0: there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man
6: naked? And so to all
0: of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping.
6: You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. That was so terrible. I think you gave me cancer.
2: All right, everybody, that's tonight's show, our 182nd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer.
6: All righty then, we'd like to thank our in studio guest, special guest Kelsey Harrison, Mr. James Manning, and our guests tonight Meredith Israel, Steve Friedman, Dr. Nita Sabell, Deborah Vollmer Dahlke. We're expecting
2: you. All right, everybody, next week, May 2nd, Parents of Survivors. In our survivor spotlight, you know where you love her, Dory Plate, young adult survivor, thyroid cancer, and her mama, Adelina. I hope I'm saying that right. Adelina Plate, yeah. Thyroid, also a thyroid cancer survivor, parent of Dory Plate in our survivor spotlight, and Bonnie Julius, who's a bereaved parent, president and co-founder of Crickets Answer. For cancer. All right,
6: folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. Live from the Chemo Deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, James Manning, Amanda Freeman, myself, and our whole team here at I2Y, have a great week. Go to bed, Dory. Go to bed,
2: Dory. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. It' love welcome of world